Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He grew up playing for Red Deer College, where he's a national champion before transferring to U of A, where he also won a national championship and player of the year. He played over 10 years with our national team, earning the captaincy and several best blocker awards. And he played professionally in Spain, France, and Italy. And I can't wait to get into this one. Please welcome to the show, Murray Grappentine. Murray, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, no problem. Uh, thanks for reaching out. It's uh, been a few years since I played, so, you know, some people might not remember but uh yeah it's good to to pass on some knowledge maybe i think people will definitely recognize the name i'm excited to get to the behind the scenes stuff but before we get uh, right into your national team stuff just take me from the start like when did you get into volleyball what age did you feel like you started treating it like it was going to be your full-time sport Ooh, uh not until probably grade 11 uh is when i kind of made the decision to for grade 11 grade 12 to to go volleyball full full out. I, before then, I was uh, a hockey guy. I, I grew up playing hockey, loved hockey. You know, like like every Canadian kid, I was making the NHL. Uh, and then, you know, the, the body type decided it wasn't uh, it wasn't made for that being tall and skinny. Uh, and you know, I always enjoyed. I played uh, junior high volleyball and high school volleyball and, and just local club. Uh, in Wetaspin, which, you know, was relatively small. So we, we weren't super successful, but I really enjoyed it. My friends and I, we all like playing volleyball probably better than, you know, any other sport. So, uh, yeah, the, the body type just kind of determined that, you know, I was being successful in, in volleyball, provincial team uh, after grade 11. Uh, and that's kind of when I decided, you know, maybe I should be looking a little more seriously at, uh, what my options were, you know, and, and growing up in the, in the nineties, uh, you know, mid nineties, you didn't early mid nineties, you didn't, uh, didn't necessarily know there was professional volleyball options, right. As a kid. So, uh, I think that's come a long ways where, where kids now know that, that it's, it's an option and they can go overseas and play. But, uh, you know, I didn't know that when I was a kid growing up, uh, I just remember watching the national team down in Calgary every once in a while and um, the Olympics on TV, um, uh, you know, but other than that, I didn't know there was uh, a career to be made out of it. Um, but yeah, grade 11, I started, made the provincial team that summer and then uh, club at Red Deer the next uh, in grade 12 and kind of decided from there that that was my path. Very cool. Now, when you say Olympics, would you have been watching like 92? Because you would have been lucky in that era where we had a drought there for a while. You would have got to see the squad in 92, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I watched that on TV. Uh, and and then the the 96, uh, you know, afterwards, uh, the, the qualifier, I believe, was in, uh, or yeah, 96, that would have been the qualifier in uh, Edmonton, I believe it was. Uh, I went and watched. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of... Grew up in the center being in Calgary. Lots of the guys after the 92, uh, they came up and did uh, camps in my school. Uh, three of the guys uh, came up and, and did a camp uh, in my school So in the summer. So that's kind of, I guess, the seed was planted at that time. It was kind of, I had just finished watching these guys on TV and they're showing up in my local gym. So that kind of was like, real cool and they were great guys and uh terry gamion great wills croft i believe and i can't remember who the other guys were terry gamion was there for sure uh i can't remember who the who the other two guys were but uh yeah it was uh it was fun it was it was a it was kind of the experience that kind of pushed me started nudging me in that direction you know seeing seeing Olympians in, in my, in my local school. And yeah, I was uh, quite in awe of them. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Now you mentioned like, uh, you didn't really know what pro was cause there was no access to it, but were you aware of how good like the red deer program was and what you were stepping into when you started playing post-secondary? Well, they, so I was playing club, uh, for the ju- juvenile at the time. So you 18 now, I guess it would be. And, uh, so yeah, I was, I knew that, but that was their first year that they had won was, was 95, 90, no, uh, 94, 95, uh, was the first year that they won with Keith coaching. Um, so that was my last year of anyway. So we ended up watching them 
train kind of alongside them a little bit. And yeah, so I knew I knew they were a good team. Clearly they, they had just won nationals and, uh, you know, and then it was nice to, I was kind of getting the nudge from my club coach to go there. Uh, knowing that Keith was a good coach, it made it pretty easy of a decision. Um, I, I kind of got recruited as a, as the third middle, uh, coming out of high school, you know, I was tall and skinny and kind of raw still. Uh, so not a lot of university options, you know, directly. And I, I think I kind of made it clear pretty early that I was going to go to Red Deer. So I'm not sure how hard, uh, universities were really looking uh, if they had talked to my coach uh, and, you know, cause I think that's usually the first step is they kind of inquire to the coach, what's the kid's plan. And uh, I kind of thought that that was going to be my best option to develop. So uh, going there thinking I was going to be third middle and then last minute uh, they're one of the starting middles from the year before decides to stay on the farm and farm. <laughs> so a spot kind of opened up for me. And, uh, and then from there, you know, I was lucky enough to, to earn uh, the spot all year and, and we end up winning nationals. Would you have taken the opportunity to go to university? Cause it wasn't that uncommon in that era to go to a red deer or Mount Royal and then go play university after like, it almost seemed more common for even like the Brock David, or excuse me, Brock Davidox and Dallas Suni. It's like guys who came shortly after you that uh, I know it's not that common now, but it seems like at that time it was pretty common to, you know, transfer some credits, but also get some playing time before you joined like a CIS squad. Right. And, and that was the, that was the draw for me. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot more common. Um, that was, it was also before, uh, schools like Red Deer, they didn't offer degrees at that time, right? Like, so you, and you, you could only play four years of college. So since then they've, they've added, you can play five years of college, uh, Red Deer and some other schools have offered degrees. So you can spend your whole time there playing college. Um, so yeah, but it was very it was very common to play a year or two uh, college and then go uh, and, and it makes sense right like you you go and you play at a good level uh, instead of sitting on the bench for a couple of years you know in university you go and play pro or you go and play uh, college for a year or two and then you then you make the transition to to the next level right it's a everything's a step up and it's it's a big jump from high school to university. It's a little bit of a less jump from from high school to college, uh, so it makes a lot of sense. Um, it allows you to play and develop and and get the reps in, game reps in that you you wouldn't otherwise get. So I think uh, when you do get to the university uh, level, you're you're a little bit more prepared, you know, and especially for somebody that was maybe my body type that I needed a year of maturing. Still, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't that physical. I was, you know, I was probably, well, when I started uh, at Red Deer, I think I was six, seven and like 180 pounds, you know, <laughs> so like just super skinny, right? So I needed a year of filling out before I, I could really compete at the university level. Uh, and then, so yeah, you take a year, you, you work out a little bit, you, you know, you get a little, fill out a little bit more as a, as a, as a man and, and then you're a little bit more ready for, for the grind of, of university. Definitely, definitely. And I, I found an article, but before we went on the interview here, that it basically implied that uh, you're basically happy to make the next team. So you were happy to make Red Deer and then you were happy to get a look at U of A. But uh, I'm curious, you win a provincial and national championship at Red Deer. Was the national team a reality there? Do you felt like when U of A kind of gave you the call and you met with Terry, you're kind of like, this is like the next step for me that you weren't looking much past that? No, like definitely going to Red Deer, I didn't, I was like, you know, like I, I didn't, I knew I would make the team, but I, I didn't, I wasn't thinking much past that. Right. And then I had a pretty good year there, I would say, uh, you know, Keith Hansen, uh, very, very well known for developing uh, athletes and winning. Um, I mean, you just look at the, the guys that went through his program and the success that they had both, both there and, uh, in university and then onto the national team, the guys like you mentioned with Dallas and Brock and, uh, and such. Uh, so, you know, there's a history of it there. Um, but it's the, you just never know. Like, uh, after that year, I had got invited to the, the B team in Calgary, uh, for, it was just like, uh, was it three weeks, five weeks in Calgary? 
of kind of fichu guys. Uh, and, you know, like I didn't know anybody I kind of came in as an unknown, uh, you know, again, pretty raw, uh, made the team as a, as like an extra kind of thing. Uh, or made the training group as an extra kind of thing. Uh, and then was going to U of A and, uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately for me, unfortunately for, um, the other athlete, Trevor Jones, he, who was the, one of the middles for U of A that had lost in the finals to Manitoba in 95, uh, or 96, sorry. Uh, and then he, he ended up, uh, tearing his ACL at that, in that camp. So I was going to U of A as a, as a third middle and, and again, just the, the stars kind of shined on me and the spot opened up, uh, a month before the season. And, and, uh, yeah, I was I was able to play that year as well, and he, as, as Trevor had to take a year off to rehab his knee. Now you mentioned the level does jump going from club and high school to college, but uh, even as successful as you were with college, was there another jump to go to university? Because it's not like you're just going to a CIS team; you're going to a CIS team, excuse me, that is going to try to win nationals every year. So was that a big jump in your learning? Do you think? I would say yes. Uh, but when you go from one successful program to another, um, I think the biggest thing is, is just that expectation to win. Um, and I think we had a fair amount of turnover from, from the U of A team that fin- had finished second the year before. Um, you know, both left side hitters were gone. Um, right side hitter was gone. One of the middles was gone. Uh, so we, well, two of both middles, uh, Clint and Clint was their third middle the year before. So, you know, like really it was just the, just Doug is the setter who was returning off the starting lineup. Um, so I think we, we started the year not really knowing, um, where we were going to be. Um, but it's the, it's the expectation of winning that, that good programs have, uh, that I think keeps them as good programs um, because that filters into practice every day. And it's just a mentality that, that they have. And I think coming from Red Deer, uh, which, you know, the program had that uh, after the year before when they had won and then we were successful all year uh, and, and then ended up winning. Uh, then you transfer to another program that, had, that was a successful, uh, that was successful the year before uh, history of winning. Uh, you kind of just, it's just the expectation, you know, and then of course there was lots of work put in by, by the coaches, uh, you know, lots of, lots of early morning reps, uh, with Gordon Polcock doing the, in the one gym doing passing because middles had to pass back then, uh, you know, and then, uh, we'd break off and lots of individual stuff with Dale, uh, hitting and board, uh, hitting with middles. So yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of, it was a big learning curve, but it's, again, you come from an expectation of winning and, and pushing yourself. And I, I don't think it was, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it difficult, but it, uh, it was, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was what it was, I guess. <laughs> I hadn't put too much thought into that. So we were chatting before the show. Uh, you were one of the guys who would play on the national team and then return to your school program. So uh, I'm curious, what was your entry point with Garth being the head coach of the program? Did he see you because you're around Manitoba and kind of beating up on those guys? Or was there an open tryout or were you recognized as a FISU guy the year before and you just kind of climbed the pathway? Like, what was your entry point to being like a senior national team athlete? Yeah, so I think it was after... Uh, after my year of Red Deer, uh, and then going to that trial, uh, cause Garth, I believe Garth was the one who more or less picked the team, uh, or had significant input, even though it was Greg Ryan and Glenn Hogue and Larry McKay coaching it. I believe Garth had uh, a, a big influence, uh, as to who was on the team. So I think that was his introduction to me. Uh, and then the next year playing, uh, against, uh, you know, Manitoba and stuff. And then I, it was an open trial from, well, open. Uh, I think you had to be invited, but, uh, yeah, 
relatively open, like no guaranteed spot for me by any stretch. Actually, it was, uh, they used to do uh, the tryout, quote-unquote tryout, was a little mini tournament of four teams with like eight guys per team, something like that. And we just play each other in games. Um, yeah, so that was that was interesting. I remember playing, you know, with uh, guys like uh, some of the older guys that weren't going to be around all summer, but they came in just for this little this little tournament thing. So I think Gingero was there the first year. Gino, uh, Kent, uh, and also guys I had kind of looked up to uh, on the national team were you know were there. I was kind of like. The little kid with big eyes, kind of like these are these are guys I know, kind of thing, or see on TV, kind of thing. Uh, so that was that was pretty cool. Uh, I thought it was an interesting way to do a tryout. Now uh, I love the name dropping. So you mentioned like the the vets there with Kent and Jinjera and a couple of those cats. But who were some of the other guys in your age class? Like is Terry Martin around your age group, or Keith yeah. Sanheim, or who were some guys that were also entering the team at that time? Keith is a little bit older, uh, but Terry, uh, Terry would have been there. Um, well, uh, what other guys? Um, Andy Zorowski, Jules Martins, Scott Kosky, uh, kind of all those guys, uh, that kind of age group, uh, the next year, Steve Brinkman would have been, uh, part of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, those are kind of the, the big names from now, that kind of went into national team stuff. When you entered the team, what was going to be the qualification to try to get into Sydney? Like, was that a realistic goal for the squad? And what would have been the process to go through uh, the, the pathway that way? Oh, definitely. It, uh, I thought we had, a, we had a pretty decent chance. We, you know, back then, Cuba was top three in the world. Uh, and they, like you kind of had Cuba and US were were top five. We're both in the top five of the world at the time. Uh, so World Cup, uh, they or World Championship, whichever one it was. Uh, you Cuba won uh, was top three, so they got an automatic berth. And then we hosted the US in the North Sea Cup qualifier in Winnipeg in January of, of two thousand. So and we had a good team. Uh, we had Kent was our setter. Uh, Terry and Ross Ballard were our left sides. Jason Aldane and myself his middles, and Paul on the right side. Paul on the right side. So we had a good team. Uh, we beat the U.S. in the round robins, but uh, in the final, they uh, they took it to us a little bit. No, what's cool? What do you remember about that time? Because when we had Fred Winters on the show, he was he was so great and just being honest about the situation where Canada has always been good and competitive, but the number of matches we're playing compared to other federations at that time, like it just adds up over time where uh, he mentioned in his era, it wasn't that they weren't good enough to be in World League. It was that there was no money and they couldn't pay like the entry fee and the TV and stuff. So uh, I know you were just a little bit ahead of his time. You would have overlapped, but in your memory, being an early uh, senior team guy, is, is that kind of the same situation where the, the squad was really good, but when you don't play maybe 12 to 20 as many competitive matches as the USA, it's just tough when it comes down to that one game, right? Yeah, definitely. We we would be in it like one year or two years, and then not in it for a couple years. Uh, you know, but Volleyball Canada would go into the hole for big money uh, in order to put us in it. So it, it, you know, they can only do that every once in a while, and they got to you know <laughs> cut uh, cut fun, you know, like uh, cut expenses and that kind of stuff. Um, so the program's come a long way in that regard, um, from what I understand anyway. Um, but yeah, back in the day, my first two years, so 97 and 98, um, I think we played in the ballpark of, we went to France my first year and we played France for four games that summer. Um, those were basically all our games, uh, and then a North, and then I think there was a Morsica thing in the in the fall. Um, and then the next year was kind of the same. Like we just we didn't play, uh, and it was so it was really hard to 
yeah, you're missing out on game reps. You're missing out on game reps against top teams because you go to a Norseka, okay, Cuba was good, U.S. was good, but the rest of the teams weren't that good. So you would kind of clean the floor with them and you would play one of those two teams in the semifinal, you know, and if you if you lose, now you're playing for bronze against another bad team, so you're winning that one easily. And, you know, if you win, then you're playing another good team, but, you know, they've been playing World League all summer. They're, again, like I said, top five in the world, so uh, it was difficult for to get matches in. And, yeah, it was just a, it was just a funding thing um, from, from back in the day. What was it like for your development going from the national team and trying to play the, these international matches and get the team to qualify, but then going back to university? Like, obviously, Terry's a top coach, and I'm sure you had stuff that you wanted to work on, but did you ever feel like, oh, I, I've, I've already made it and I'm past this? Or were you always excited to go back to university and kind of work on some other things or maybe be the guy on that lineup where you're still earning your time with the national team? Uh, definitely always excited to go back. Um with the national team, uh, you know, I was more a traditional middle, right? Where your your role is, is kind of limited. Uh, you know, you're hitting you know 51, 61, whatever quick balls. Uh, no, not really much back row. A little bit, but back then because there was no libero when I was first starting. When I was still in university. There was no libero yet. Uh, so you're still hitting a little bit of back row, but you're not the main option. Whereas I go back to university. Uh, we ran a bit of a, a different system where I hit outside sometimes, I'd hit middle sometimes, um, and then hitting lots of back row balls as well. So I was a little bit more involved in the offense, I guess you could say. Um, so yeah, it was always exciting to go back and and play and kind of you know be one of the best players instead of feeling like there's, you know, at the international level, there's lots of good players. There's lots of better players. Um, so, you, you know, you go back and you feel like you can dominate and you, you can do a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, it was always fun to go back and play. And then, of course, there's, this, you know, as a young player, uh, even if you are on the national team, there's lots to learn. Um, and that's where, you know, having good coaches like Terry and, and Gord, uh, Bocock at the time was helping Terry and Dale uh, Johns. We would, you know, like they would teach us lots still. I still have lots to learn. Um, and lots of lots of stuff mentally to learn and how to how to perform. So it's uh it was always valuable going back and, and playing. Um I only played the three years there. I, I left I left a year on the table because I was kinda I, I didn't think developmentally I needed it anymore. Um so yeah, I I guess you could say eventually I, I decided that it wasn't I didn't need to be in university anymore, but uh, for the most part, uh, up until then, yeah, I did. And uh, what led to the decision to go to Spain? Because uh, I think volleyball is still fascinating to this day where sometimes uh, I hear stories where, oh, I got my pro contract because I had a buddy on the team and they said they needed a left side and they called my agent. Like it, it still happens that way where sometimes it's a little bit more professional and feels like maybe a North American sport, but sometimes it just comes together. But I am curious, your first contract, uh, was it word of mouth? Was it through an agent? Was it through a guy who had a good experience there? Like, how did you land your first gig? It's, uh, it was through, uh, Singerton. Um, they, the, the team needed a, a middle. They were a team in champions league in Spain. So, I mean, I didn't know anything about anything, you know, in terms of the pro leagues and stuff. Uh, I just knew that they were in champions league. Uh, so, you know, would be a relatively good team. I was like, well, it's only four months. It was after the Olympic qualifier, so it was January until the end of the season. Um, so I was like, sure, let's go. You know, it was decent money. So I was like, yeah, let's go. Let's go give it a try. Uh, it was interesting flying there. They were playing in their first, they were playing in a Champions League game in, I want to say it was Switzerland. And I had to fly in there and then nobody was there at the airport to meet me. They just sent, they like called a taxi to like, so there's just this taxi guy with like the sign. You know, like, I was like, okay. He's like, he barely spoke English. You know, I'm fresh off the plane. It's late. We're driving through the driving like an hour to get to where the team is. Uh, 
Yeah. So I meet the team on the road the first the first night, and you know, you know, nobody show up. They're eating supper, and <laughs> so yeah, it was a it was an interesting first experience. So I'm 22 at the time, you know, kind of kind of green of you know, I've traveled with the team, but that's lots of people just telling me where to go and what time to be there, and it's you know, kind of first time traveling really on my own, especially overseas. And it was, uh, it was a bit of an experience. Now you mentioned they were in champions league. They was a competitive club here. I believe they won the Spanish cup and I think finished second in super league that year. So was that just a fun team to join, even though like, uh, we're a little rough going on the first impression there, but was it a fun team to be in? Cause you were just competitive right away. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, the team was decent. Um, for sure. Um, we, I think we lost the, the, both the cup and the league to, uh, uh, to, a to a team, uh, to Almeria. Uh, uh, okay. I think that's who it was. We just couldn't quite beat them ever. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was okay. It was in the middle of nowhere. Um, so like volleyball wise was okay, but the travel really sucked. Uh, we would bust everywhere and we were like, eight hours to some places. So we would leave at like two in the morning and bus all day and get somewhere, have a nap and then go play at the night and then get on the bus and drive back. Uh, so it was that experience wise was not the greatest. Um, but you know, overall the team was good and, and whatnot, but yeah, it was the, the league itself isn't as good as some of the, some of the other leagues, but that team was good. And just to follow your, your pro journey here, then you land in France, which seemed to be a pretty popular destination for a lot of uh, volleyball Canada athletes at that time. And I saw the first year you were there was with Terry Martin. So uh, was that something you guys had planned together? Or was that something you're kind of like, Oh, I'm going to play here. And he says, yeah, same here. Like how did that uh, come together where you guys landed on the same club? I think it was just kind of out of happenstance. I, like we, we definitely didn't plan it. Um, I'm sure, uh, Paul Graton maybe had something to do with it, uh, at the time, uh, cause Terry was already playing in France. Um, so the, you know, the tour would have known who he is and, you know, his national team stuff. And, uh, we had just finished playing, uh, our last chance qualifier was in France that year. So I met my, I met, had already signed, but I met the coach, uh, Vlad Alekno who went on to coach the Russian national team uh, as well. I believe he's coaching Iran now. Uh, anyway, uh, he was my coach. So I meet him. Uh, but it was just kind of happenstance. And it was great that Terry was there because I spoke no French. Uh, and Terry's bilingual. So he kind of helped ease me into, into that after a year of Spain where uh, – I didn't understand a whole bunch. Uh, it was nice to, to have somebody be able to translate uh, for me. Uh, and it took me a little while. You, know, you pick up some things pretty quick, but lots of times you need a little bit of help. So it was nice for him to, to be able to do that. Uh, do you have any good Vlad stories for me? And I, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think anyone who's ever been the head coach of the Russian program obviously has a certain amount of toughness about them. So I was wondering what it was like uh, having them as your head coach. Well, Vlad was hilarious as a coach. Um, anybody who knows who Vlad is, is he's a very large man. And uh, we would all, he, he especially loved doing bench press. So he, we would, we'd all be, you know, doing our bench press, whatever, you know, 225 or whatever, struggling through a few reps of that. And then he would sit down and he would rack off like 25 at the 225, just no problem. Boom, 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 boom. Just, you know, like no problem. Just like an NFL, you know, like the NFL combine guys that are just, just throwing the weight around like it's nothing. Uh, and then there would be like a couple other like bodybuilder type guys in there that would have like super heavy weight on. And Vlad would just like, you know, no warm up. We just go, just tap the guys like, hey, can I, can I work in with you? And the guys like, you know, kind of gives him the, yeah, go ahead. And he, again, he just bounces it off, throws it around. Like it's no problem. These guys are struggling with it. He was just, he was just so strong. He's like just the strongest volleyball player I've ever seen. 
But uh, yeah, he was an interesting man. Uh, and how was the level of that league? Because I, I noticed you you hung around France for a while. So was that kind of your entry? And then when Glenn had an opportunity, that was the time to switch? Or uh, were they pretty like even clubs, would you say? Well, when I, Tour, Tour was on the rise uh, as a club um, when I jumped in there. So that year we lost to Paris. My first year in, in Tour, we lost to Paris in both the Cup Final and League Final. Um, and yeah, I mean, they were just good. They had, you know, Paul Durden, Haldane, Sebastian Wett, um, Antigua, uh, a couple other guys that played on the French national team. So yeah, they were just a very, uh, uh Yuri Novak, uh, Czech guy. Uh, yeah, they were very, very good. Uh, so after, you know, after a couple of years, there, there kind of was a spot open. Glenn was there. Um, you know, it's always nice to go play with other Canadians. Uh, my second year on tour, Terry wasn't there anymore. He had gone. Uh, so I was like, yeah, let's make the jump to, to Paris. Uh, I like winning. <laughs> I think I can win there. So I, so I did that. Just signed one year. And then uh, after that year, I signed for two more. So, uh, yeah, it was just a, and then it's Paris. So, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's just a nice, nice city to live in uh, once you get through the traffic. Uh, and then lots of people like to come visit. So you're, you know, you're always having family and friends come. So it was, uh, it was quite enjoyable. Now, was it ever officially spoke to that you were going to be the replacement for Jason Haldane? I know that probably wasn't, uh, formally what it was, but just looking at the roster, it looks like one Canadian middle swaps out the other and they still have, uh, you know, Gino Antigua, Novak, uh, Ruet, like the guys you're mentioning Greaves where, uh, was that maybe a conversation that you and Glenn had where maybe you were familiar with the system and they could keep going, even if they were going to use, uh, lose a guy like Jason? Uh, that could have been their uh, conversation. It was never said to me. Um, but, I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, from from their perspective, from from Glenn's perspective and Harris's perspective. Uh, yeah. I would say that that's probably what they, what they thought. Uh, Jason leaving opened up a foreigner spot for me. Um, so I kind of slid into that. Now with the, the two year contract, I find that interesting because in volleyball, most clubs and most players go for the one year at a time. Uh, what made you so comfortable that you're kind of like, I'll, I'll go the two year route here and maybe get a little bit of comfort and stability versus the one year thing at a time. It was just that it was, uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed that year. I uh, enjoyed the guys on the team. Um, so, uh, and I knew uh, a few of them had signed for a couple of years. Um, so I was, you know, I was willing to, to take that. I don't know if it's a risk, but uh, that option, uh, it was like one plus a player option for, for two. Um, but yeah, it was, I, like I said, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. So uh, I, I thought, well, I'm a little bit tired of moving around and uh, it's nice to have a little bit of stability. So, and, you know, we were successful every year, uh, you know, we were winning either, uh, either the cup or the league. So it was, uh, it was nice to, you know, be successful. Now uh, around the time, maybe a couple of years before Glenn took our head coaching role, uh, he also stepped away from your club team, and it looks like uh, Eric Agapath, who some of the listeners would recognize that name, became the head coach. Uh, obviously, losing Glenn's never a good thing, but did that maybe open up maybe what the coach saw in you, and that created some opportunities where now it wasn't same old, same Canadian coach? Like, Did you feel like you had a new opportunity to kind of show a few different things, or what was it like when the coaching switch happened for you? So my second year, I, Glenn was only there my first year in Paris. Um then we we got um, another coach, Pavel. Uh, I can't remember what his last name was, but he he was relieved of his duties partway through the season, uh, and then Angapeth came in near the end of the year, or middle of the year, something like that, uh, and then was there the next year. Personally, I didn't get along with Angapeth very well. Um, <laughs> there, we, we, he's the only coach I've ever gotten into an argument with. 
we were in a we were in a preseason tournament uh, up in northern France somewhere, and uh, we were in the final against Portier. Uh, Paul was on Portier at the time, and uh, so we're in the final. We're we're down by a few. I started in the back row, you know, so it was Liberoed out. It's like seven five or something like this. You get an you get an overpass, and instead of going up to hit it because their setter was front row, I, I set it to our setter, and our left side doesn't get off the net, and he gets caught, and anyway, he gets end up getting blocked. Uh, Engapet pulls me out like I played like three points in the match, you know, like. Uh, and I think one was a misserve. Uh, so anyway, he subs me off and I yell at him, you know, why in French. Uh, and then we kind of get into a bit of an altercation after the game. He's like, you can't yell at me like that. I'm like, well, you can't take me out for no reason. And so anyway, we're going back and forth for a little while. Uh, but that, that's the only time I've ever yelled or got into it with a coach. So. Anyway, him and I did not necessarily see eye to eye on some strategy things and uh, some some workout things uh, that, uh, yeah. I, so I, I didn't particularly enjoy him, but I, I've talked with other guys uh, that had him as coach and they thought he was a great coach. So, you know, it was just that was my experience. And uh, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. And just to focus again on, on your pro career before we get to the national team here stuff. Um... Looks like you stayed in France for a couple more years, right? Was that just something that you were comfortable? You knew it was a good league. You knew that it was going to be a good place to live. Like, did you ever think about leaving to another league or, or France was going to be the spot for you until you did the that final change to Italy? No, I I would have. Ideally, like, you know, looking back, my plan was to do the those two, those three years in Paris and then move on to a bigger league. Uh, unfortunately, my last year in Paris, I, I hurt my shoulder um, kind of near the end of the season. Uh, and I, there was the rumor or the the word out on the street was that, you know, I was injured. And, you know, so finding another contract was a little bit more difficult that, that year. Uh, and, I, and I wouldn't say I played that great that year either. Um, again, conflicting with the coach probably had something to do with that. Um, but yeah, I hurt my shoulder that year. So the word on the street was, you know, don't risk too much on this guy. Uh, this is what I found out kind of after the fact. So yeah, options were a little bit limited, but I got a decent contract offer from another team, uh, in, in France. Uh, so I decided to take it. Um, and you know, it was, they, they were a team that was just coming up from pro B, but uh, you know, I had decent money, I had great supporters. Uh, and it was, it was actually a really fun year. Um, it was the first year I didn't play in Champions League. So it was nice to kind of be a little bit more chill, uh, a little less, uh, volume of games, a little less travel, uh, all of that kind of thing. Uh, so that was, it was, it was all in all a fun year. And then, you know, after that, uh, went to Cannes. Uh, which is, you know, again, lots of Canadians have played there. Um, and, and, you know, it's a beautiful place to live. So, again, the contract was decent. So I was like, yeah, let's do that. Um, I wasn't, you know, you hear lots of stories of guys uh, going to other leagues and not getting paid. And I was a little bit leery of that. Uh, and France is pretty, uh, pretty safe that way uh, in terms of getting your money. So. I mean, we could have went other places earlier, um, but I, I didn't particularly feel like risking. And just one other name that caught my eye was uh, you would have played for another coach uh, in Tilly, which I think deserves a lot of credit for uh, obviously France being a top team in the world here and their role coaching that squad. Uh, anything, any memories there playing for it? Because I think he was obviously he's a very established coach now, but I'm not sure if he was, is at this level uh, when he was coaching your club team. Is that fair to say? It was right before he took over uh, the French national team. Okay. Uh, so, or not too long before. Um, but yeah, I you know he he was a very good coach. Uh, you know, pretty similar to Glenn actually in in very technical, very passionate, very knowledgeable. 
uh, could could communicate very well with what he what he wanted and and your role and all of those things. So yeah, he was uh, yeah. I really enjoyed playing for him. Uh, he's he him and Glenn are you know in terms of my pro pro career and and on uh, are probably my two favorite coaches that I played for. But yeah, he's just a, a really nice guy as well. Cared about your cared about you as a person and and all of those things uh, that you know made you feel welcome to the team and that you were important and all those things athletes like. <laughs> And uh, you just mentioned the, the difficulty getting those contracts, but you did finish up in Italy and actually joined a club where I believe you won the Italian Cup that year. So how did that deal uh, come apart that you, you got to go make the transfer and play for another European league, but also go to Italy, who at that time was maybe the top league, right? Yeah, it would have been one of the top leagues um, for sure. Um, so there, it was for an injury. Um, the Their Brazilian middle wrecked his knee in the either in the cup final or in the semi-final i can't remember um so anyway they were looking for a medical joker so i get i, I had kind of retired and, and moved on and moved to regina uh started uh working and i get a call a few months later saying hey we might we might get you to come do this uh injury sub uh we'll let you know uh, get in the gym, start working out, blah, 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 get yourself ready. Uh, so I started doing that. I'm like, cool, that sounds good. Uh, so I start working out, start getting myself in shape and, uh, you know, getting ready to go over. I don't hear anything for like three weeks. So they're like, oh, well, it'll be between you and this other guy who's who's playing in France, but they might lose out. They're, they're down in their series. They lose out, we'll probably take him because he's playing. So it's like, cool, whatever, just let me know. All this will work out a little bit harder and whatever. Uh, so I don't hear anything. So I assume they took this other guy. But uh, three weeks later, I get this call. Like, okay, uh, are you ready to come over? We got to, we need you to get to Edmonton to the consulate uh, in two days because they're going to open it up for you to get your visa and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm ready. <laughs> so I fly to Edmonton, get my visa, fly over. Uh, I played... We played, I think we played three league games and two playoff games uh, in the two weeks or something that I was there. Um, I think we lost them all in five and I was on my way home. Wow. Because it was just, it was there till the, it was just for the end of the season. So I wasn't there very long. Um, but yeah, it was, I was kind of there as a, as a third middle. Uh, they had two. They already had two good middles, um, but they, you know, they needed a, a third. So I would kind of get subbed into block or serve, and and that was about it. Uh, I didn't play a ton, but I played a little bit, and uh, yeah, it was it was fun. Sweet, sweet. So to circle back to your national team experience, uh, you start under Garth. Uh, and the team has a battle, but doesn't qualify for Sydney. And then I believe shortly after Stelio becomes the head coach and, and obviously you're growing in your role and becoming more of a pro and, and just kind of building with that. So what was your first impression under Stelio and just the, the squad during that cycle? It was, uh, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a development switch, right? Like, uh, under, under Garth, we had lots, lots of the older guys, uh, you know, the, the Haldanes, the, the Greaves, the Gino was around. Uh, Ross Ballard, uh, you know, we had Keith Sanheim. Uh, and then after that, we kind of lost lots of those guys. Um, Haldane came a little bit, but uh, lots of those guys kind of took some time off from the national team for a few years. Uh, well, and then some guys retired altogether. All uh, so we had like a bit of a turnover for the first little bit. So, um, yeah, Stelio... So it was a, was a good coach as well. Uh, I remember all our practices involved a lot of jumping, uh, lots of compete, uh, you know, wash drills, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so they were always fun. Uh, but yeah, lots of jumping, uh, was, was one of the things I remember the most about, about that, uh, about that time. Uh, but yeah, lots of, lots of transition of players, uh, some new roles for guys, you know, uh, some bench guys getting promoted to, to starters and, uh, more university guys. Uh, so 
Oh, yeah, lots of the U of M guys retired, Jules and Andy. Uh, Scott still stayed on. Um, but yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a turnover uh, time, I would say. And was it similar to the Sydney cycle where same thing, uh, Cuba and USA are very strong and we, we just don't have the matches or the, the competitiveness to kind of get over the hump and try to qualify for Athens? Yeah, I would say, yeah, we, I would say we, it was a bit of, uh, a little bit of that and a little bit of, of just new faces and some guys, some new, you know, we weren't quite, we weren't quite at the same level as we were. I would say it, it dropped in terms of overall level because, you know, when you go from guys that have played eight years of pro or whatever, and they're 30 and, you know, and experienced or 30, 30 plus, they, they, you know, still, still physically fit. And, you know, to a 22 year old rookie, you know, like there's a, there's a big knowledge difference in, in those, in those athletes. Um, so it, it was a little bit of that, a little bit of, I would say we just, we were always, it, it felt like we were always one player short, you know, like whatever position, you know, it would, and the position would maybe change a little bit. Um, but it felt like we were just one player short of being uber competitive with, uh, you know, the, the top teams. We were like right there, but not quite. And I would say before uh, we were a little bit closer uh, in all aspects. And I had thought the the Stelio change came shortly after the cycle, but as you mentioned before the show when we were chatting, uh, it happened a little bit after. So was that maybe caught off guard that uh, VC was going to make a change or that Stelio was going to choose to step away? Like when you heard Glenn was taking over, like what was the announcement and the mood around the team? Because uh, it, it wasn't as clear cut as we're not making the Olympics and Stelio was gone. I think he maybe lasted maybe a full season after, right? I believe so. Yeah, um, it was. Well, you know, nobody ever likes when a coach has changed, um, you know, as an athlete, you don't like that. Uh, you know, like you feel bad for them. Um, but at the same time, having played for Glenn, uh, on a few different teams, you know, the pea shoot thing. And then, uh, and then in France, uh, I knew he was a great coach. So I was like, well, you know, we're making this change, but I know we're getting a good coach to come in. Right. So it was kind of positive that way, I guess I would say. So, and I think the other guys felt the same way. Well, it was Glenn had a great reputation. Uh, you know, had won a lot in, in Europe. So we were, we were excited to get him to come in. Now, Glenn gets a lot of, played, sorry. So, uh, and lots of the guys had played for Glenn, uh, on various teams. So he, uh, yeah, like I said, he had a good reputation amongst the group. Now, Glenn gets a lot of credit, uh, and rightfully so, for being great at periodization. Now, I know uh, this is your first experience with him as the senior national team coach, but I'm wondering, with Fisu, it was maybe a little bit shorter season, or clubs a little bit different, but could you tell right away that he was just really good at, at his planning and being very technical, tactical in the building? Where, or You mentioned like Stelio wanted to jump and compete every day, where the sense I get from Glenn and guys who have played for him is, uh, you're pretty monitored and there's going to be heavy days, but there's also going to be days where you take it a little bit easier. Is it, is it fair to say he did that in club as well? Or was your national team the, the first experience of, of Glenn being the mad scientist with the periodization? Uh, no, definitely with the pro team as well in Paris, we were definitely like that, uh, especially playing champions league. Uh, you know, like there were definitely, there were definitely lighter practices or shorter practices. You'd be like, okay, we're only going an hour and a half today after, you know, after warm, go hard for an hour. Uh, kind of thing, and then you guys are done. So, like, there were lots of those uh, kinds of practices, and and definitely uh, with the workout routines, it was heavier at times, and then tapered off to to lighter. So he definitely did that in pro. So I was used to that with him um, from from that from there. Uh, but I think he really established communication, probably better communication between. Uh, all areas, the, the physio, the, uh, the workout and, and then, you know, sports psych and then practice. He, he really established good communication amongst everybody, uh, to, to monitor the athletes. And we had, uh, more systems in place, uh, you know, from, 
from weighing in all the time uh, to hydration checks uh, to uh, just, you know, asking how you're feeling, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, to, to kind of monitor where, where you're at um, physically. Um, so, and I think he, you know, he, he studied up on that quite a bit. So he, he made that a, a good priority and I think it showed big benefits uh, to the program. And another thing I think Glenn deserves a lot of credit for was uh, the, the blocking system he installed. And obviously being a middle blocker himself, I'm sure he's pretty demanding on the position. But with that being a strong skill of your own, was that something you guys clicked right away? Like, were you able to kind of be a leader and show the young guys? Because uh, you kind of entered the program as the young guy. But as you mentioned, like the people start cycling out ahead of you, where all of a sudden you find yourself the vet on the team. Like, did you feel like you could be really an anchor for Glenn's system as he's bringing in these new guys to kind of build what he wants to do? Um, well, I hope I was, um, I think, uh, as an athlete, I was, you know, I was maybe less, uh, how do I say this? I was maybe more in my own world, um, of what I needed to do and less of, a and trying to lead by example, as opposed to telling other people what to do. Uh, I didn't feel like that was my job as as, a, as an athlete, even as captain. It wasn't necessarily my job to, to tell the young kids, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. Uh, it was more to, to perform and practice and show up in practice and, and, and be demanding of myself uh, in, in practice. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't say I was teaching uh, other other players, other middles, the younger middles. Um, we kind of had a, a solid group of it was me, Steve, and Brett for for quite a few years. Um, so we we didn't necessarily have, and then we all kind of well, Brett and I retired at the same time, and Steve stayed on for another cycle. Um, so you know, like there wasn't that big of opportunity to do it either um, in terms of on the national team. So a little bit of that. Um, but I don't know. I just think as a middle blocker, it's your job to to understand the system and and your role in it. Um, and to and Glenn again is a very good communicator, so you, you can understand what you what you're supposed to do and what he wants you to do, and you know what you can what you can focus on and and how you can be successful. Now, obviously, there's a few ways to do it, but I think you deserve a lot of credit for being a, a world-class read blocker. And what I'm curious about is, were you a big eye sequence guy that you were like looking at the quality of first pass? Were you watching video maybe to figure out setters' tendencies before it happened? Like, what do you think made you so effective in that role that you could, obviously, you could commit block and you guys could trap and do other things. But when you're just in that pure read at a world-class level, what did you do to kind of survive at the pace of game? That's a good question. Um... First of all, I would say most of my career wasn't as fast as it is now. So that helped. <laughs> um, it wasn't until near the end when Brazil really sped it up and, you know, it was a noticeable difference. Uh, and then everybody else kind of followed suit and made it a lot more difficult. Um, but I think the biggest thing from a middles perspective is that it's, it's lots of, it's lots of video, uh, of watching the setter's hands and like body position when they're making certain sets. So if they're setting a hitter, you know, left side, it looks a certain way if they're setting middle. So you try and get little cues that you can, you can pick up on um, that you've seen before. Uh, so you, you see it on video. I like to watch the setters in hitting warm up when they're just, they're setting their hitters uh, in hitting warm up just to see if, okay, yeah, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when they set middle. That's what it looks like when they set right side. Um, cause they're not really trying to hide it at that point, but they'll give you little, you just get a flow feel of how they release. Um, so I felt like that always helped. And then growing up, I played, uh, baseball in the summers. And one of the things in baseball, uh, I was taught was, you know, when you're in the field, uh, think about if the ball gets hit to you, what are you going to do? Uh, if the ball doesn't get hit to you, what are you going to do? Right. So you're thinking before the play your responsibilities like what do you have to do uh so i would do that as a middle i'd be like okay in this rotation you know hitter the power hitter is the the prime hitter uh if they if they're running this play based on our scouting report 
they're probably sitting here, right? So you kind of prep yourself before the play uh, as to probable set choices, uh, probable you know, probability of who's getting the ball, uh, what's the score, is it at the end of the set, is it at the beginning of the set, like all these variables that you, you kind of play it in your head and then you watch the pass. And then from there, you make your decision, uh, that, you know, and, and you go with kind of what you have thought about beforehand and you try to put yourself in, in the setter's shoes and what are, what are they going to do to you to try and get you to not be, you know, not be outside or not be on the block. Um, so then there's games you play, like you said, trap, you, you know, like I liked, uh, one of the things, uh, Terry told me, uh, what, I don't know, one time or whatever, but like the first eight points of a set, I like to commit on good passes. Uh, you establish the set of things you're committing, then all of a sudden you're, you, you stop and they think you're committing. Now all of a sudden you're going outside. And, you know, you confuse the setter a little bit for, and then, you, you know, you're, you're playing those games with the setter. Stuff like that that you do to try and, if you can influence the setter, then, then you're winning and you can control where they're going to set. If you're always reacting, then the setter is dictating and then it's a lot harder. So I always try to get the upper hand by, and I, that's what the commit block I thought was used for was, Okay, I'm going to give up a few points at the start, maybe. Maybe I'll guess right because lots of setters like to set middle early. So you're getting a high percentage commit. Um, but then you're setting up for later where I know you, you think I'm committing, but now I'm not going to commit. I'm going to go where I think you're going to set. And so you're playing those games back and forth with the setter um, all game. And I think that's why it was successful uh, because I, I did that. I, I felt like I, I could move pretty quick laterally, so I could get away with it, I guess. And, you know, I could, I could get away with following a 31 and still get to the, the right side attack um, because I, I was setting it up earlier. I would follow the 30 and commit, and then now I would follow the 30, and then I would release because I knew he would see me and then would take the easy one-on-one, but now it's not an easy one-on-one because I've left. Um, so it was games like that that I I think I I did well. Um, I mean, you get beat once in a while, and you just have a short term memory and <laughs> move on, learn what you need to learn, and and you move on to the next play because um, you're not going to be right all the time, and you try your best. Yeah, amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I am curious. You mentioned Terry kind of introduced it earlier when you were at U of A, but uh, as your career progressed, was that something you had freedom to call or would even Glenn or some of the other coaches you work with, hey, coming out of this timeout, I want you to commit on this guy or I want you to release early. Like, was this something you were calling and you were playing the cat and mouse with the setter or was this something the coaches like to kind of control a little bit within their system? Um, mostly something I would control. Um, occasionally, coaches would be like, you know, middle of, you know, high middle, high chance of middle on this one or whatever you can commit or, you know, those kinds of things. Like when you're playing, uh, you know, some of these, some of the middles out there, they're, they're high volume or they get set a lot. So it's like, okay, they're probably running middle on a good pass and you can commit. You'll, you'll get that information too. Um, but generally speaking, it's, you're kind of, I was left to my own devices, if you will, um, on that. Now, uh, with the offensive side of the game as a middle, uh, again, I don't want to overstep, but it felt like we went from middles hit 50s and 60s to now, you know, we have the pipe overload or you might see a little bit more 30s or a little bit more gap stuff. So uh, was that something that was appealing in your era? Or did you feel like, again, the system disrespected and expected you to go to the setter and hit 51s? Like uh, when you look at the middles now, that's got to be with the positions probably evolved the most. But I'm curious, uh, in your era, what was kind of accelerating or coming through maybe that wasn't there when you started? Because obviously, like you said, you had to service when you first began playing and that changed. Uh, I'm curious what else was changing in that 2000s era when things were starting to speed up, like you mentioned Brazil and everyone else uh yeah that's for sure uh the the fast pipe over top uh running like uh a little farther away from the from the setter instead of the 51 more of a 41 uh so you're you're a little bit more in a gap 
um, was, was one of the big things. And then, you know, some of the floating stuff, you know, like running a, a slide 50 or uh, 30s kind of sliding in. So it's kind of a short 30. Uh, some of those things were, were just kind of evolved, I guess. Um, Brazil does lots of that kind of stuff uh, where their middles are not jumping or not hitting where they're jumping. Um, and then, the, yeah, the fast pipe over top was, was kind of the biggest thing, um, which, you know, I, I always talk when I talk to setters um, and I say, you got to run the middle. It doesn't necessarily mean like a front row middle, right? It just means middle of the court. So that can be a pipe as well. And then when Brazil run, you know, started running it really fast and then everybody followed suit, right? That's as good in terms of my mind as a middle as a quick because now I have to respect something coming out of the middle of the court. I can't just go to the wings. Um, so it makes life a lot harder. Uh, so that was a big change. Uh, and then, and then the, uh, the 30 is lots of times it was a little bit more traditional uh, when I was coming up. If somebody was running a 31 as a middle, they were either going to set the 31 or the right side. You know, uh, so those were your kind of two options or 51, they were going to set the left side. So you kind of knew, uh, and then it kind of went, well, now teams are running 31 with a fastball over top. So, you know, it looks like a 31 because the, the speed is, is so, so similar. It's just a little bit higher and it just goes over top of the middle. So you looks like a 31. So you jump with the 31 and then you're, you're landing as the left side's pounding the ball over top of you because you can't get back up in time. Uh, so that kind of changed as well with, with the speed of the game. Um, so those were, those are kind of the, the things that I noticed near the end of my career. And I think it's, it's only continued since then. Um, you see a lot more, you see a lot more middles off the net now, like uh, passes off the net and setters forcing than, than back in the day. Uh, and almost on good passes now, it's, it's, it's less, seems like less middles. Um, whereas before it was on good passes, they would run middle and passes off the net less so. Um, so I think that's another evolution uh, in the setter position, uh, being able to set that ball consistently uh, for kills. Now, with the, the national team, I know guys like you and, and Koski and some other vets, uh, I don't think you guys take enough credit for what you were able to build. Uh, and obviously, I'll, I'll say that for you. You don't have to say it. But uh, I'm curious, when you were going through and maybe it was time to hang it up, but, uh, do you ever look back and be like, yeah, we kind of laid the foundation there? Like, was there any obvious signs of what Glenn was building that, uh, sure, guys like you were cycling out, but as soon as like a TJ got there or Blair's been there for a lot of years, like as soon as other young guys that maybe you helped show the way or lead by example, like you said, uh, could you tell the program was going to turn around and these guys had a serious shot of, of accomplishing something? Well, I mean, I think so. Um, I think one of the biggest things they did was having the the full time center for for those young kids to transition out of university to stay in the center for a good chunk of time uh, and train and get physically stronger, good coaching, uh, and, and all of that, so that when national team came around, they were ready for that. Uh, so I think that was one of the big things. Um, but I, I think we set a, I think, you know, the guys you mentioned, I think we set a good uh, example in terms of, you know, working hard and, and trying to play the right way and, you know, all of those things. Um, and you know, followed on by Fred and uh, guys like that after the fact, you know, and I think you get some, then you start getting some, some really athletic guys that come in, uh, you know, like Gavin and, and Perrin and, you know, uh, Bygrass coming in and, and all of a sudden now you have a, a, a real solid team, um, that that's been, you know, everybody, I think everything is built off of people that come before you. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it was great to see those guys succeed. I can remember when it's still, watching them qualify, I was like, so proud of them. You know, I was like, you know, so happy for, for guys like Fred who had worked so hard to, to get there. 
Well, man, this is this has been so awesome to get the behind the scenes. Like I said, I think a lot of listeners will see your name pop up and be like, oh, hey, he was a great player, but maybe we don't know the details or everything you went through with your career. So it's great to hear everything that you've shared. But uh, one tradition we built into the show is just to sell something funny or unique because I think the volleyball community is pretty great and something odd usually happens along the way in people's awesome careers. So I was hoping you could share just to laugh before we let you go. Oh, ah. Uh, so the first thing that comes to mind I'll go back to my year in Red Deer. So after we won, you know, of course you're celebrating. Uh, and I maybe had a couple too many that night, we'll say. And uh, I wake up in the morning and I got this like mark on my head. And I'm like, oh, what? what's that from? You know, I have no recollection of what happened. Nobody on my team knows what happened. Uh, it's this big mystery. They're like, oh, I, you must have hit it on the toilet when you were puking or something. Uh, you know, nobody knows what's, what it was. That was the, that was the, the best guess anybody could say. Fast forward 25 years. Uh, one of my teammates, Jacques, uh, is a golf pro in Edmonton. He's talking to this guy. Uh, he's from, he ends up being from Truro, Nova Scotia, which is where nationals were that year. He happened to be our team, like liaison. So they get to talking and he's like, Oh, blah, 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 blah. You know, I was your team liaison. Oh, cool. I don't remember you, but whatever. Like, and then they get to talking and like, whatever happened to that guy, that big guy that fell and hit his head. I mean, Jock starts laughing. He's like, because nobody knew the story, right? He's like, so the official story comes out that him, who he was like 6'2 or something like that, and the smallest guy on our team, Colin Stevenson, was a setter, who was like 5'8, were carrying me back to, you know, helping me get back to the room. And because of the size difference, I like just toppled over <laughs> and head hit the ground, you know, on the carpet, skidded there. They picked me up, get me, chuck me in bed. Uh, so that was the, the official official way after 25 years, I finally <laughs> found out how it happened and why. <laughs> now, did they not remember either or they didn't want to own up to dropping you like that? Well, well because it was the, the host guy. So he we didn't see him the next day. And then Colin didn't remember either because <laughs> you know, we were celebrating. So, uh, yeah, that was the, that was the, the, the official reason as to how that happened so it it was a mystery for 25 years and everybody laughs about it still whenever i meet whenever i talk to those guys from red deer there they they laugh about it still amazing what a small world to finally get to the truth 25 years later no kidding right Oh, well, man, this has been so amazing to, to get your story and hear about your career so i just want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing all that you did well, thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to hearing more from other people.